0: And if you would, please take a copy of God's word and turn to Isaiah chapter 49. Isaiah chapter 49. We'll read it in just a moment. Uh, Reminder to you that if you don't have a Bible with you, those black books in the chair rack in front of you, you can probably find it there and probably find it there. There's no probably about it, but um, uh, there's probably one in front of you. Every now and then we miss a row. I think that's what I meant. Uh, Page 609 in there. We also print the scripture text in the bulletin. And then uh, last but not least, sermon notes, sermon outline are on the back page. No, that's not a typo. We have 10 points this morning. So, hear the reading of God's holy, inerrant and inspired word. Listen to me, O coastlands, and give attention, you peoples from afar. The Lord called me from the womb, from the body of my mother. He named my name. He made my mouth like a sharp sword and In the shadow of his hand, he hid me. He made me a polished arrow, and in his quiver, he hid me away. And he said to me, You are my servant, Israel, in whom I will be glorified. But I said, I have labored in vain. I have spent my strength for nothing in vanity. Yet surely my right is with the Lord, and my recompense is with my God. And now the Lord says, He who formed me from the womb to be a servant, to bring back Jacob to him, and that Israel might be gathered to him. For I am honored in the eyes of the Lord and my God has become my strength. He says, it is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel. I will make you as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. Thus says the Lord, the redeemer of Israel and his holy one to one deeply despised, abhorred by the nation, the servant of rulers, Kings shall see and arise, princes, and they shall prostrate themselves because of the Lord who is faithful, the Holy One of Israel, who has chosen you. Thus says the Lord, in a time of favor, I have answered you. In a day of salvation, I have helped you. I will keep you and give you as a covenant to the people to establish the land, to apportion the desolate heritages, saying to the prisoners, come out, and to those who are in darkness, appear. They shall feed along the ways, on all bare heights shall be their pasture. They shall not hunger or thirst, neither scorching wind nor sun shall strike them, for he who has pity on them will lead them, and by springs of water will guide them. And I will make all my mountains a road, and my highways shall be raised up. Behold, these shall come from afar, and behold, these from the north and from the west, and these from the land of Syene, Sing for joy, O heavens, and exalt, O earth. Break forth, O mountains, into singing, for the Lord has comforted his people and will have compassion on his afflicted. But Zion said, the Lord has forsaken me, my Lord has forgotten me. Can a woman forget her nursing child, that she should have no compassion on the son of her womb? Even these may forget, yet I will not forget you. Behold, I have engraved you on the palms of my hands, Your walls are continually before me. Your builders make haste. Your destroyers and those who laid you waste go out from you. Lift up your eyes around and see. They all gather. They come to you as I live, declares the Lord. You shall put them all on as an ornament. You shall bind them on as a bride does. Surely your waste and your desolate places and your devastated land. Surely now you will be too narrow for your inhabitants and those who swallowed you up will be far away. The children of your bereavement will yet say in your ears, this place is too narrow for me, make room for me to dwell in. Then you will say in your heart, who has borne me these? I was bereaved and barren, exiled and put away, but who has brought up these? Behold, I was left alone, from where have these come? Thus says the Lord God, behold, I will lift up my hand to the nations and raise my signal to the peoples and they shall bring your sons in their arms and your daughters shall be carried on their shoulders. Kings shall be your foster fathers and their queens your nursing mothers. With their faces to the ground, they shall bow down to you and lick the dust of your feet. Then you will know that I am the Lord. Those who wait for me shall not be put to shame. Can the prey be taken from the mighty or the captives of a tyrant be rescued? For thus says the Lord, even the captives of the mighty shall be taken and the prey of the tyrant be rescued. For I will contend with those who contend with you and I will save your children. I will make your oppressors eat their own flesh and they shall be drunk with their own blood as with wine. Then all flesh shall know that I am the Lord, your savior and your redeemer, the mighty one of Jacob. Thou sends the reading of God's word. Grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our Lord will stand forever. Let's ask his blessing now as we consider his word. Let us pray. O God, our God, earnestly we seek you as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. Father, would you give water and food to the hungry and the thirsty this morning? Would you give light to those who dwell in the shadows and in the fog of life? Would you shine on our hearts with your word, with your grace, with your goodness? We pray it all in Jesus. Great name. Amen. God's servant is not two faced but he is multifaceted. I'm mixing my metaphors just like Isaiah. He uses numerous images to show the complex, multifaceted nature of God's servant. And again, God's servant, he's not two-faced. In other words, he's not deceptive, not hypocritical, not presenting one thing about himself than doing another, but he is multifaceted, like a diamond that can have 57 or 58 faces, facets. It just adds to his luster and his glory. How many facets does God's servant have? I'm going to say more than 58, more than we could count. So we will limit ourselves today to ten. Ten facets, facts, points about God's servant. Though he is complex, he has revealed himself to us through his word so that we can know him truly and reliably. But before those 10 facets, a brief outline. Isaiah chapters 40 to 66 is known as the book of comfort. 40 to 48 focuses on Cyrus, God's ungodly servant who would send the exiles home for his own selfish reasons. But then 49 to 55 focuses on the servant who brings God's greater deliverance In chapter 49 is also the second of the so-called servant songs of Isaiah. The first one of those is in Isaiah 42. It says that the servant, he is God's chosen, his spirit-filled, humble one. But then in Isaiah 49, you learn a little more. You learn that this servant has a mission. With that, let's look at 10 facts about the servant and his mission. First up, we see this. The servant is Israel. Servant is Israel, verse three. Yes, we start in verse three. And he said to me, you are my servant Israel in whom I will be glorified. Israel was God's chosen people. They had received numerous covenant promises and if they had followed God's calling, they would have been humble, like the servant of Isaiah 42. If, if they had followed God's calling. So how will Israel, God's servant, how will they accomplish all that God has called them to do? Because they have not done that if they have not followed him. Israel, of course, was the new name that God gave to Jacob because he wrestled with God. And this servant, it seems to be a singular person in Isaiah 49, but again, the servant is Israel, yes. And secondly, we see the servant has a divine mission, verses one and two. Read verse one with me. It says, listen to me, O coastlands, and give attention, you peoples from afar. The Lord called me from the womb, from the body of my mother, he named my name. God called this servant, this person, or is it this country? He he was chosen for this mission by God before he was born. And then verse two, he made my mouth like a sharp sword. In the shadow of his hand, he hid me. He made me a polished arrow. In his quiver, he hid me away. His mouth, it says, is like a sword, an arrow, a sharp object for surgical precision to effectively speak God's word. So this servant, it seems, will be a prophet. And Israel, of course, had a prophetic purpose. They were supposed to be a light to the nations. They were to be holy so that the nations around them would know that God, their God, was holy. So the servant has a divine mission. And third, we see the servant has a worldwide mission. The servant has a worldwide mission. You see it verses one, six through eight. You see it numerous places throughout here. Verse one calls out to the coastlands, to the peoples from afar. Verse six says that God's salvation, it'll reach to the ends of the earth Verses 11 and 12 says the mountains will become highways and people will flow into Zion from every direction, north, south, west. doesn't mention east because there's a huge desert east of Israel. Bottom line, this mission is not simply focused on Israel and yet it, it is focused on Israel. As my next point says, don't worry, I will unconfuse you later. But it's not only focused on Israel. Focus on that for now. It's not only focused on Israel. And that's not something new. There was always an outward focus on the nations in the Old Testament, even if it was somewhat minor. Think, for example, about Rahab and Ruth, non-Israelites, Gentiles, as they were called, who are welcomed into Israel, the people of God. Ruth was from Moab. And Rahab was from the wrong side of town, the red light district. Both of them were welcomed into the genealogy of King David as well as great David's greater son, his genealogy as well. The servant has a worldwide mission. Did Israel succeed at that mission? No, the the exile discipline is, is hanging over the book of Isaiah. They haven't obeyed, they haven't done what they should. So so maybe God is calling someone else to this mission. Maybe there is still good news on the horizon. The servant has a worldwide mission. And fourthly, we see the servant's mission is to restore Israel. Servant's mission is to restore Israel. We see this in various verses. And you're saying, wait a minute, I thought the servant was Israel. Isn't that your first point? Yes, it is. Verse three says so, but verses five and six, Pardon me a second. Verse five, and now the Lord says, he who formed me from the womb to be his servant, to bring Jacob back to him. So the servant's purpose is to bring Jacob back to him. We go on and that Israel might be gathered to him for I am honored in the eyes of the Lord and my God has become my strength. He says, it is to light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob. And to bring back the preserved of Israel, I will make you as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. So Israel is the servant, verse three says. And then what we've just read, it says the servant, the servant says that God formed her, formed him from the womb to bring Jacob or Israel back to him and then make them a light to the nations. What's going on here? Are we looking at a greater Israel? A better Israel? An Israel who will succeed where the previous Israel failed? It seems so, one author concludes, he, the servant, he embodies all that the nation of Israel was called to be and therefore is truly worthy of the name, God's perfect servant. Also the prophet par excellence is who this person is. Another author says, Jesus, came from Israel, identified himself with Israel and acted as Israel's substitute. And oh yes, perhaps I buried the lead here. The servant is Jesus, who would come centuries later. The servant is not ultimately Cyrus, who we spent many chapters talking about an instrument of God who didn't worship God. The servant is not a mighty king like David to drive out the nations, the Babylonians, the Persians, or later the Romans, or any other nation that would conquer Israel. That is not what Israel needs most. They need Jesus. They need to come back to the arms of their Savior. Their good and gracious God who had given them all the good things that they squandered. Their greatest need was is the same as ours. They needed restoration. They could not be a light to the nations unless they first became a light, unless they first renounced the darkness in their lives, their idolatry, their greed, their arrogance. Now, as you read this chapter, it almost seems like God's people were a lost cause. Notice in verse four, the servant says, I have labored in vain, wasted my time. Look at these people. Verse 7 says, the servant, he's deeply despised by his people. He came unto his own. and His own received him not, John chapter 1 says of Jesus. Israel's fallen on hard times, rebellious times. So the servant's mission would be difficult, humanly speaking. But the person we're speaking about is not merely human, is he? The servant's mission was restore Israel, so that she can be the light to the nations. She was always intended to be, and if she fails, he will be that in their place, in her place. Though this is a hard mission, number five, the servant's success is secured by a covenant. His success is secured by a covenant, verses eight and nine. Secured, or assured, his success is. See, that's what covenants do. What is a covenant? If you're learning your catechism, you know, it's an agreement between two or more persons or as O. Palmer Robertson said, it is a bond in blood sovereignly administered. Ratifying a covenant in the Bible usually involves blood and dead animals. So it is in Genesis 15 where God tells Abram later called Abraham. He tells Abram who still hasn't met this son of promise who's starting to doubt God's promises. God tells him, cut some animals in two, because Abram, if I don't fulfill my promise to you, then let it be done to me as it was done to these dead animals. May I be torn in two if I don't keep my promise to you. And of course, God cannot die. God cannot lie. And that's the point. God's covenants are doubly secure and then some. Verse eight says, this says the Lord, in a time of favor I have answered you, in a day of salvation I have helped you. I will keep you and give you, servant, as a covenant to the people to establish the land to apportion the desolate heritages. Paul quotes this in 2 Corinthians 6, but again, We want to focus on the covenant here. This servant is given by God as a covenant or a covenant mediator to the people. He mediates the covenant. He carries it out. He accomplishes God's promises. He establishes our hope in our future in the true and final promised land. The servant's mission is how God will fulfill his covenant promises to his people. And if God's covenant cannot fail, then God's servant cannot fail either. His success is secure. It's assured. He will restore Israel, God's people. They will be a light to the nations, to the Gentiles. And we are proof of that if we are in Christ. You see the gospel did not stay tucked in a tiny little corner in the Middle East. No, it is echoed out across the globe and into our hearts. That's some of what you see next. This servant's success is secured by a covenant. And then number six, got to use two hands now. The servant's mercy will release prisoners and captives. The servant's mercy will release prisoners and captives. You see it. Nine to 13, as well as 22 to 26. Notice verse <clears throat> 9A, saying to the prisoners, "Come out." Is that an allusion to, to Lazarus come out?" Well, the, I don't know, but maybe. Verses 9 through 13. They show us prisoners freed, freed, fed, emerging from darkness, protected, even pitied. pitied. Do you, Do you want to be pitied? As it says in verse 10, I mean, maybe not that word. It's almost condescending, isn't it? As if we are a weak and helpless and pathetic people. I mean, after all, we are new Testament Christians. We have not been given a spirit of fear, but of power and of might and a sound, sound mind, right? But breaking news, the Bible also says this about New Testament Christians. Ephesians 2 verse 1. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of the world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and we're by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Maybe we too need a God who will pity us and protect us. A God who is rich in mercy, Ephesians says. Maybe we need the servant's mercy to free us from the sin that so easily entangles, the sin that enslaves Maybe we need the servant to flatten every obstacle so that we can run to our savior from whatever corner of the earth he calls us. Verse 12 said, behold these shall come from afar and behold these from the north and from the west and these from the land of Syene. Scholars debate where Syene was located, but they're pretty sure it wasn't in Israel because this servant's mercy, his pity, They aren't just good news for Israel. After the servant's mercy, we also see number seven, the servant's people may feel forgotten, but they certainly are not. Servant's people may feel forgotten, but they certainly are not. Verses 13 to 16, verse 13. Oh, so triumphant, it almost stands out on its own. Sing for joy, O heavens and exalt, O earth. Break forth, O mountains into singing, for the Lord has comforted his people. And we'll have compassion on his afflicted. But so quick after this delight of victory, you see despondency. Verse 14, but Zion said, the Lord has forgotten me. My Lord, excuse me, the Lord has forsaken me. My Lord has forgotten me. Zion was Jerusalem, the city of God. And her residents here are saying God has forgotten them. Could have been for any number of reasons, but keep in mind, as Isaiah wrote this, they were probably under siege or they were waiting for the next one, waiting for the other shoe to drop. But I ask you, sometimes we feel like the other shoe is about to drop. Are our present circumstances, are those enough to give us reliable information about our God? No, you also need divinely interpreted history as well. Look at verse 15, the beginning says, can a woman forget her nursing child that she should have no compassion on the son of her womb? God is presenting here a seemingly impossible scenario. Studies show that women who face the difficult choice to give up a child for adoption, they they still struggle with guilt over it, maybe because she can't stop caring about that child. There's a God who can forgive the deepest guilt. That's not the point of the passage, is it? He goes on in verse 15, can a woman forget her nursing child that she should have no compassion on the son of her womb? Even these may forget, yet I will not forget you. God is saying it's nearly impossible, nearly unthinkable that a woman could stop feeling compassion towards her child. But even if the near impossible might happen, God will still never forget us. That's not nearly impossible, it is impossible. He has not forgotten his children. In fact, it says he has engraved us on the palms of his hands. What would you see if you saw the hands of Jesus? Nail holes to prove his love for us. One children's song says it this way. Jesus said, if I am lost, he will come to me. And he showed me on that cross. He will come to me. We can always run to Jesus. Jesus strong and kind. That group doesn't just sing kids songs. By the way, he will come. He showed me. He proved it. We may feel forgotten. It happens. But we are not. Feelings are not facts. Feelings are not unimportant either. The Psalms, it has been said, are an anatomy of all the parts of the soul, said John Calvin. But so often the Psalms also show us the expression of deep feelings before pivoting back to the facts that contradict those dark feelings. The servant's people may feel forgotten, but they certainly are not. And number eight, we see the servant will be served by kings, will be served by kings. Kings will prostrate themselves, verse seven. They'll serve the servant in the sense they will worship him. One day every knee will bow, the scripture says, some by choice, some by force. And that theme shows up again and again here, verses 17 and 18, the ones who destroyed Israel, they will go out and and be no more by implication. God goes on to say that, that His people, they will be adorned like a bride. The bride will wear white, according to Revelation 19, no matter how unworthy she is, because she will be covered in the righteousness of Christ. And then verse 23, kings shall be your foster fathers and their queens your nursing mothers. With their faces to the ground, they shall bow down to you and lick the dust of your feet. Then you will know that I am the Lord, Those who wait for me shall not be put to shame. How much will God's people be loved, be taken care of? Kings shall be your foster fathers and their queens, your nursing mothers. The rich, the powerful, the mighty, they'll take care of you. Not because of who you are, but because of the servant who came to serve you, to take care of you. You see, if Jesus wins in the end, then so do we. Before we move on, I have to tell a story about a foster father I knew back in the South. He wasn't sure he wanted kids. and he became a foster father. He didn't really want to. He did it to make his wife happy. First year was hard. He struggled against feelings of inadequacy as a father. At Some point, something clicked in part because he saw how much his foster children, whom they eventually adopted, he saw how much they had suffered in their previous family because of neglect and abuse. And he realized, I may not be the best father, but I may be the best father these kids ever have. My imperfection may be a whole lot better than what they would have had without me. God changed his heart. He genuinely loved being a father. So biological fathers, foster fathers, adoptive fathers, surrogate fathers, whoever, you don't need to be perfect. Most of the time you just need to be there. You just need to do your best by God's grace. You don't need to be royalty, you just need to repent and follow Jesus the best you can. And one day we will all have kings for fathers, it says. Because if Jesus wins in the end, then so do his people. The servant and his people will be served by kings. Number nine, the servant will provide life out of barrenness. Life out of barrenness. Verses 19 through 21, I won't read all of these. Too narrow, too narrow. That's that's what you see, that theme coming up. What's going on here in verses 19 and 20. It's as if God's people are in a room They're in a land that is devastated and desolate. Then all of a sudden it's too small, too small because it's overflowing with the blessings of more children, unexpected blessings. Several months ago, we had a lawn day after second service when we do a little potluck meal. I'm one of those Presbyterians who believe you can still say the word potluck, by the way. Um, It's a joke upon a joke. Anyway, lawn day, second service. We had a whole mess of kids running around in the sanctuary, making noise, having fun. And one of the grandfathers in the congregation, his grandkids live a few states away, sidled up next to me and he said, that's the sound of a healthy church. Amen, bring on the noise. Children are a blessing, they're a sign of new life. And yes, we do hope to value all of life from cradle to the grave. And yes, we hope to value the life more abundant and free. What do I mean? The Dobbs decision this summer was a great day. It's okay to rejoice in that. It's okay to say, yes, this is a great day. And yes, it's more complicated in Colorado because abortion is still very legal here. All that means is there's more opportunities to minister to women in need, women who may be scared and confused. But even if we have a dozen more victories with a impact as big as the Dobbs decision. I pray that we do. Even then, we still have work to do. We still have a mission to fulfill because for every new life that comes into the world, we should rejoice and then we should pray that God would grant them new life, abundant life, a life more abundant and free. Life is a gift, one we should never despise. And it should also point us back to the giver of life, the one who can give eternal life, should it not? The servant will provide life out of barrenness. And finally, number 10, we see the servant's strength will bind the strong man and rescue the captives. His strength will bind the strong man and rescue the captives. His mercy, that's point number six if we've lost track at this point, his mercy gives us freedom, but it takes strength to secure that freedom. Again, he's Jesus strong and kind. Why is it that kings shall be your foster fathers? It's because the answer to verse 24 is yes. Verse 24, can the prey be taken from the mighty or the captives of a tyrant be rescued? If Jesus the servant is our liberator, then yes. Verse 25, for thus says the Lord, even the captives of the mighty shall be taken. And the prey of the tyrant be rescued, for I will contend with those who contend with you, and I will save your children. His people were about to be enslaved once again, and in one sense, they would never again know peace as a nation. The return of exiles is underwhelming. And yes, Israel is a nation once again, but even now, they're bombarded by war, even terrorism on every side so maybe that's not what God is talking about here, that kind of peace. Maybe the freedom that Zion longed for would not be seen on this earth. Notice verse 26, I will make your oppressors eat their own flesh, and they shall be drunk with their own blood as with wine. Then all flesh shall know that I am the Lord your savior and your redeemer, the mighty one of Jacob. Imagery like this will show up again in Isaiah 63. It may also be what John is alluding to in Revelation 14 19 and 20 blood flowing all over the place. And you may say, where is the comfort in all that? It's a few verses before in Revelation where it says in Revelation 14 13 before the blood flows. And I heard a voice from heaven saying, write this. Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Blessed indeed, says the spirit that they may rest from their labors, for their deeds follow them. In other words, the blood you see in Revelation 14, Isaiah 63, Isaiah 49, 26, it's not your blood. It's the blood of God's enemies on the final day. Those who ignore every opportunity to repent, who die in rebellion against God. One day, those who hate God will never be able to harm his people. That's what Isaiah is saying to his people. I will rescue you. That was a comfort to a nation that was staring at an exile and an invasion. It should be a comfort to those of us who still live in a fallen world. The just judge will make it right one day, all of it. The mighty one of Jacob. You see, this is the multifaceted servant whom we serve. He'll be all that Jacob, that Israel was supposed to be. He will restore Israel to be a light to the nations, including Gentiles like us. He will, he will succeed. God's covenant guarantees it. He will show mercy to those who need it, to those who feel forgotten. He will give life to the barren, the desolate places. And even though he shows mercy to us, he will show strength to those who persecute us, to those who oppose his rule. And on the other side of that reckoning, we will know peace. Look with me at verses 10, 11. They shall not hunger or thirst, neither scorching wind nor sun shall strike them, for he who has pity on them will lead them, and by springs of water will guide them, and I will make all my mountains a road, and my highways shall be raised up. Verse 13, sing for joy, O heavens, and exalt, O earth, break forth, O mountains, in the singing, for the Lord has comforted his people. We'll have compassion on his afflicted. He's a multifaceted savior, multifaceted servant. But I confess one of my my struggles, one of the facets that I have most trouble remembering is in some ways the simplest, his goodness. Some of you know that I often start my prayers by alluding to Psalm 119.68, you are good and what you do is good. We live in a cruel world, a fallen world. And so when I find reminders of his goodness, I sometimes have to latch onto them and hold on tight. Like this song, same group I quoted from earlier. Come find what this world cannot offer. Come and find your joy here complete. Taste the living water. Never thirst again. Rest here in his wondrous peace. Oh, the goodness the goodness of jesus satisfied he is all that i need may it be come what may that i rest all my days in the goodness the goodness of jesus he's not two-faced he's not deceptive he's not he won't let you down you won't be put to shame as it says in verse 23 but he is multifaceted and one of those facets is blessedly simple. He is good. And one day we will taste and see that He is good. Let us pray. God, you're good. You are holy. You are mighty. You are glorious. And you are good and kind to your people. God, in the midst of rebellion in our hearts and rebellion all around us, help us to see your goodness. Help us to see your forgiveness. Help us to draw near to you and find mercy at the foot of your cross in the person of your son, our savior, Jesus. It's in his great name we pray. Amen.